Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. community. Um, Tim Wiscom, for anyone who doesn't know me, um, I am a covenant member here at Heights. I serve as one of the student leaders here. I'm also going through HC Institute, which is our church's pathway through leadership. Um, I have the privilege to read God's words to you today through Judges 2. So you are able to stand. This is kind of a long passage, 29 verses. Uh, 28. So um, if you can stand, um, please do. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who, has, who had seen all the great work and the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and they arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel." And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. 
they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Morning. Excited to be here with you. My name is uh, Corey, one of the pastors here on staff. Excited to get to be your uh, teaching pastor for this work and open or this uh, week and open up the book of Judges. And so, uh, actually, I, I told them I was going to do verses two. I'm sorry, chapter two, six through three, six. And so I, I lied to our tech team. I apologize, tech team. If you could actually give me verses one through five before I get through my intro, that would be incredible. Okay. And so, uh, in that, we're currently in this series called "Lest We Turn," where uh, we are looking at the difference between what happens whenever we turn to the Lord versus what happens whenever we turn away from the Lord. And so as we are coming out of the book of Joshua, if you've been with us this whole time, you kind of remember we just come out of Joshua, Joshua 20, what was it, 4, 28 last week, and I got to teach on that. And then now we're opening up, I'm opening up the book of Judges. And if you remember from uh, Joshua, things were, were going pretty good for them. Uh, they turned towards God for the most part, you know, and then uh, things started to get a little bit worse towards the end of Joshua. And now as we get into Judges, uh, things are going to get much, much worse for them because Israel is going to turn from God um, almost completely. And not only is Israel going to turn from God, but the very judges that God has given to help redeem Israel, they're going to start to turn from God as well. And it's going to get just messier and messier and messier. And so it's going to be a heavier next couple of weeks um, as the, the scripture kind of forces us to look at what happens to humanity whenever they begin to separate themselves from God. Um, which is a, a fitting and, and good text for our book for us to be in as a people. So I would encourage you then to engage. Okay, if it gets hard, if it gets difficult, I would encourage you to continue showing up, to continue listening. If you're on Facebook, thanks so much for tuning in on Facebook. I would encourage you to keep viewing on Facebook because it's going to get messy. Judges is going to be difficult. That's the whole point of the book. Okay, apart from Jesus, there is no hope in the book of Judges. Remember us saying, we've been prepping you for like months, right? So if you're new and you're like, gosh, these guys got, some, got a chip on their shoulder. We don't. Israel's the one to blame. We're just, don't shoot the messenger, all right? We're just telling you about your ancestors. And so if you remember from last week, Joshua 24, uh, I got to preach on that. And I gave you three points. And the three points that I gave you last week were past grace, 
uh, present grace and future grace. And so let me uh, kind of stir you up by way of reminder, if I may. And so last week, what I had uh, unpacked in that was past grace, present grace, and future grace. And the point of that, if you remember, was that God had come to Israel and he said, look at this past grace. Look at everything that I've done for you. I've literally done everything for you that I said I was going to do. And you have remained unfaithful. I've been faithful. I've done everything. You have done nothing. And then there was present grace. And so Joshua then talks on his own and he says, Israel, right now, in the moment, during this vow renewal, you're cheating on God. You still have idols behind your back and in your tents. You have these little trinkets. Do you remember that? And and he says, like, in this moment, God is inviting you into relationship with him, and you continue to commit adultery. And then Joshua built this monument, this witness stone to stand so that whenever in the future, whenever Israel rebelled, they would recall, my God, God is gracious. Look how merciful he's been. Look how incredible he has been to us. And so, listen, it's important that I recap that. Because whenever we get into the book of Judges, listen, you will just as quickly forget God's grace as the Israelites did. Like it gets so heavy and so dark and so twisted, they're going to start cutting babies out of bellies. Like it's coming, okay? It's messy. It is coming in Judges. But God is not the one to be at fault here. Humanity. And this rhythm that Judges, if you could throw off as those for us. Commitment, complacency. And compromise, if I could get them all three, there it is. This is really the, the cycle that we see in the book of Judges. And, and honestly, if we're being real with one another, this is the cycle that we see in our own lives. Like we start off with something, commitment. All right, you know what? Let me, let me hit, hit you with this. New Year's resolution, I'm going to the gym. Week one, commitment. How many of you? Okay. Week two, complacent. I don't need to go three days a week, Right. I don't really need to watch what I'm eating. I don't really need to. And then what? You got what? Full on flipping compromise. March, what gym? I didn't even know there was a club fit in Collinsville, right? Why do I keep getting $22 taken out of my checking account? Who is this? Who are these people, right? And then you keep paying it for like years to come. I'm going to go one day, right? It starts with commitment and then it becomes complacency and then it is full on Compromise, like that's so much of our life. How many of you started a read through the Bible in one year track before? Commitment, boom, three weeks in, solid. Fourth week, I can skip a day. And then you're like me and you're 18 days behind. It's like 15 hours of listening because I'm in the Old Testament, right? And then I justify because I'm like, I mean, I'm studying judges. It'll be fine. I don't need to read that. Compromise. I've like given up on my Bible reading plan. All of a sudden, that's repentance for me right there. Confession and repentance. We'll get to that in the sermon too. But listen, this is the rhythm for Israel that we see in Judges. But uh, if we're being honest, like it's the rhythm for our life as well. And so with simple things, we have commitment. We're all in. It's just kind of overtaken by complacency. And then we find ourselves in compromise. I would say also in big things. Things like addiction. Commitment becomes complacency, becomes compromise. Whenever marriages get hard, our parenting gets hard, or we start a new thing, new rhythm in the household, we have commitment, we're all in, but then we become a little complacent whenever things get difficult, and then compromise, it was just easier not to deal with it. See what I'm saying? And so all throughout the book of Judges, this is what is given to us. It's the rhythm of Israel because it's the rhythm for humanity. This is our rhythm. And so there's one big idea that I have 
for you that stands out above every other big idea I try to think through, and it is this. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. It's actually a quote from John Wesley. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And this is ultimately what we see in the book of Judges. This theme will probably run all, it's going to run all throughout the entire book of Judges. So you ready to get into it? All right, I'm going to intro the book. Okay, book so heavy it needs two introductions. Chapter one is an introduction and chapter two if you're doing the Bible reading plan alongside us. Let me just intro, for, hopefully they have the text for you. Uh, Judges chapter two, verse one. If it's not on the screen, just look at me. We're going to start with Israel's commitment. Here we go. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought, I, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And he did not. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, rather. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? An incredible question. Looking here at Israel's commitment. Okay, listen here. This is the angel of the Lord speaking to them. If you remember whenever Pastor David preached, I think it was Joshua 5, there was a commander of the Lord's army. Do you remember that? And Joshua's about to go into battle and he sees this commander standing there with a sword and Joshua says, well, are you for us or against us? And he responds in this incredible way and the commander says, take off your shoes. Like doesn't even pay him any mind. What he's saying to him in that moment is, if you want to win this battle, you worship me. Take off your shoes before you ask me questions. I'm the one who's asking questions. And so this commander of the Lord's army, this angel of the Lord has come. And what he's doing here is really judgment day. He's saying, do you remember all the commands that I gave you? And now he's like coming in. He's saying, how's that going for you? And then he calls him out. And we know that this is clearly God in the flesh. Fancy word for that is a Christophany. And we know that this is God in the flesh because he uses the first person, right? I brought you out of Egypt. I swore to give Uh, I swore to give to our fathers. I will never break my covenant. You have not obeyed. And so he's saying, like, remember the vow renewal from last week. Remember everything that God had done to be faithful, to remain faithful. And then he hits them with this beautiful question. I love when the Lord asks questions. I just love questions. Anyone else? I love good questions. And he says, what is this you have done. And so it's important that we camp here for just a second because most people will come to judges and they'll think God is a big old meanie. God is so mean. Why would God ever do the things that he, he's just a big meanie sitting on his high horse out there floating in this world like Dumbledore, not paying, you know, like what God's a, you know, you've heard people say that. Or they'll say things like, um, I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't, I don't do the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is not the same as the New Testament. That's interesting because the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 478 times. So in reading the New Testament, you're by extension reading the what? The Old Testament. You're still tracking with me. Okay, good. He asks this incredible question that, that lays out his posture and his demeanor toward them. He says, what is this you have done? Listen here. This is the exact same tone that God the Father has as he's approaching Adam and Eve in the garden after they've just sinned and invited sin into the whole entire cosmos. Not just the relationship, like everything dies because of Adam and Eve. And God is a good and gracious father, unchanging. In Genesis 3, he says this, the Lord said to the woman, who's hiding behind fig leaves, mind you, before God, he says, what is this that you've done? It's the same question. What did you do? 
And, and just as a good father moves towards Adam and Eve in their brokenness, in their shame, in their nakedness, so also here in this text is a good father moving towards Israel. He's not a big old meanie. He's an incredible dad, incredibly gracious, incredibly merciful for his people. Listen here, what one generation tolerates, the next will embrace. This sin begins in the garden. And what we're going to see in Judges is what really happens when you just let that sin go. What one generation tolerates, the next will embrace. So God is moving towards his people. This is not a harsh tone. This is literally like the tone of, it'd be like him saying, you leave me no choice. Like, think about it, like, having a spouse who's continuing to commit adultery, continuing, 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 and there's a moment that comes, right, where you might have to say, you just left me no choice. That's the posture of our father in the text. You see, I still tracking? Keep that in mind as we get into Judges. So what will God do? Verse 3, it's a lot to read. I'm going to just, I'm going to read more than preach, hopefully. So now I say, verse 3, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. This is the people they were supposed to conquer. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. In the Hebrew, that is a word for repented. They repented, actually. And they called the name of that place Bacham, which means to weep. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Keep reading. Verse 6 should definitely be on the screen. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went, each to his inheritance that God had earned for them, to take possession of the land. Verse 7. And then the people did what? Served the Lord all the days of Joshua. What's that? Commitment. They're committed. They've repented. They've turned. They are committed. All the days of the elders also who outlived Joshua. That's commitment who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the ripe old age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gish. And all that generation also were gathered to their father. So what has happened here? Israel was, they were committed. They experienced some complacency. They become full on compromised by the idols of their time. And what do they do? They circle right back around to commitment. That's how, that's how judges starts off. They come right back into commitment. They repent. They weep. They're sorrowful. They repent to their God. God accepts their sacrifice. He's in right relationship with them. He's loving them. What do you think is going to happen next? They're going to go from commitment to what? Complacency, right back into complacency. How do you know that's gonna happen? Because we have Judges 2, verse 10, and it says this. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Just like that, boom. Joshua dies, their leader dies. All the fathers, all their grandparents die. In, in just a matter of a couple of years, listen, no one knew the Lord anymore. No one knew the works of the Lord anymore. In a culture that is completely story formed, in a culture where sitting around the campfire and telling stories verbatim exactly how they existed, that's how they got their history. They said the people just stopped talking about the gospel. They stopped talking about being redeemed from Egyptian slavery. They stopped talking about being redeemed as the Jericho walls fall down, as the prostitutes come to faith, and all of the grace that God has given. They just simply stopped talking about the good news to their kids. They stopped talking about it. Not only did they stop talking about it, but what to tell the story includes confessing. 
How do you know that you're, how do you know that you're in sin? Because you know what God's called you to. They stopped confessing sin. They stopped repenting of sin. They stopped walking out the gospel in front of their children. And hear me say this, right? The complacency of Israel is what drove their children's disobedience. Parents, you listening still? That's weighty, dude. Facebook, I freaking forgot about you. That's heavy. Now listen, the, this is not a religious, legalistic sermon. You can do all the right things in the world. You are not responsible for your kid's salvation. But why flirt? Why flirt with the line? It is a clear warning here in the text. The complacency of Israel drove the disbelief of their children. To which I, so then what does it look like to not be complacent? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 6, right out of God's law, would tell us. Debbie, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and, of your, and on your gates. If you remember from last week, look, just putting something up in your house that says, ask for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, is not enough. But, but asking the question, whom today will we serve? Do you remember from last week? That's, how, that's what it looks like to walk out the gospel. Deuteronomy doesn't say, just put some pretty things up on the wall and everyone's going to come to faith. What does it say? Write it on your hearts. He's saying, like, actually, walk this thing out. Like, walk the gospel out. Walk the good news of your salvation out. And this is, old, this is prior to Jesus even coming here, right? He's saying, still, this should be his frontlets. And they literally do this. We don't have time to get into all the Jewish culture, but they literally hang these scriptures as frontlets off their hats as reminders. Literally put them on the doorpost of their home. We have some people in our church that do that as well. They literally have this on the doorpost of their house. Listen, what one generation tolerates, the next will embrace. So, so what happened here? Who's, who's at fault here? Were they not repentant? It says they're repentant. And so the way that uh, through study and research, what I can figure out is this, is that the grandparents had genuine repentance. The grandparents had genuine repentance. But somewhere along the line here, complacency suck in, and their parents stopped repenting. And this generation has come out here, and, and they are no longer aware of what God has done and what he's redeemed them from. And so whenever I think about that, I think it's, it's kind of good and right that we camp out here for a second. Uh, one of the things that I've learned in my missional communities, we have had a conversation about this a couple times over the last couple months, is that there are a lot of Christians that will confess, but there are not many Christians that know what it means to actually repent. And so it's one thing to confess, hey, I've hurt you. It's a whole other thing to repent and say, I'm actually looking at the cross now and I'm seeing this is how Jesus is better than whatever this thing is that I'm clinging to that I'm confessing to you right now. So Debbie, if you could throw this up. Whenever I think about it, I think about it like this. Confession is, this is what I've done. I have sinned against God. I am unfaithful. And then there's repentance. This is what you've done for me. You've actually remained faithful. So confession is, this is what I've done to you. God, I've sinned against you. I'm looking at your law, I'm looking at your character, your nature, and I have a, I'm walking in unfaithfulness. I'm walking in disbelief of the gospel, talking to specific 
Christians now, right? As a professing Christian, I'm walking in unfaithfulness. That's confession, right? Whenever I yell at my bride, I can say, sorry, I yelled at you. That's confession. When I over-discipline my kids, I can say, sorry for over-disciplining you. That's if I hurt one of you, I can say, sorry, I've, done, I've confessed, but it doesn't mean I've repented. Are you with me? And so repentance is very important because repentance is saying, now I've confessed what I've done. I'm going to, as a Christian, look at the cross and say, this is what you've done for me. And actually looking at and seeing Jesus hanging on the cross in our place as our substitute, that's what initiates repentance. Like looking at the cross, bloody, beaten, battered Jesus, and then seeing that and saying, my God, that's what you've done for me. That's faithfulness. Listen, in the midst of my adulterous and idolatrous heart, that's what you did. And listen, it is really, really difficult to not walk out godliness when you are regularly confessing and also walking in repentance and saying, God, I don't have to yell at my wife because you have taken the beating that I want to give. Why else would you yell? You want to win, right? Like, I don't have to win, God. You've won in victory. I see the cross and I see the resurrection. God, I don't have to over-discipline my children because I'm looking at the cross and you've taken all the beatings that I could ever give. You deserved no discipline and you took all the discipline. God, while I want to beat myself up right now in this moment as a parent, you took my beating for me. Thank you, Lord. That's repentance. Does that make sense? So it's one thing to confess, good, yes and amen, but then repentance is actually looking and allowing the gospel to reshape you to reform you, to help you to walk in and walk out godliness. Here's the deal. Israel stopped doing that. Some of you have stopped doing that as well. If you want to know if you're growing in complacency, you just need to ask, am I walking in confession and repentance? And if the answer is no, complacent. That's what the text reveals. Listen, our kids' disobedience, for those of us that have kids, we got to stop acting like it's removed from our disobedience. Like the disobedience of our children is not removed from our disobedience. Are you tracking with me? The ungodliness of our kids is not removed from my ungodliness. The, the unwillingness of Emma to say she's sorry or to actually admit fault when she punches Josiah in the face is not removed from my own lack of confession. Are you tracking? It's... it's and so there's, they go together. This is what the text reveals. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. Dude, we're in the spotlight, parents. We're in the spotlight. The only way to avoid complacency and comp- compromise is to replace them with confession and repentance. That's the only way you can avoid it. You still with me? This is all things we're just going to keep seeing in Judges and then ultimately, man, they slip from being committed, they repent, they become complacent, they stop sharing the gospel, stop sharing the good news, they ultimately become compromised. Just full on compromised. Verse 11, Debbie. Verse 11. And the people of Israel, listen, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. That's the Canaanite, it's a Canaanite word for lords. Listen here. And they abandoned the Lord. Did the Lord abandon them? So when we read Judges, who's at fault? The people. You can say it. Humanity. Us. And they, they, Israelites, abandoned the Lord, 
the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, who had given them immense amount of grace. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, other gods, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and they, and there it is again, abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the land of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand the enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had shown to them. And they were in terrible distress. I'm sure he's keeping that pretty PG for us because what's happening in Judges, what's coming in Judges is far worse than terrible distress. Full on compromise, man, chasing after other gods, chasing after the gods of their culture, completely abandon the Lord. That's what's coming. Again, this is the introduction into what we're going to see over the next 10 weeks or so. God has done everything. God has given them grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, been faithful to keep his promise. They can't stop turning to other gods. It just happens quicker and quicker and quicker. And hear the irony of this, because this is, this is true for us too. The very gods that Israel will turn to in the book of Judges will be the exact same gods and kings that will pull them back into slavery, literally. Not spiritual slavery. They're already there. Physical slavery. They will bring them in. The very gods that they worship, the kings that they worship, are going to bring them in, put them in slavery, and start to kill them. Man, this is also a challenge, yeah? God gives Israel over to their desires. Why? To show his mercy and grace. He comes to a point where he's like, you leave me no choice. And so he actually leaves them in grace and in mercy to their own demise. The, in light of parenting, right, there comes a time where you tell your kiddos, if you have kids, you tell them no, right? No, don't touch that. No, don't touch that. No, don't touch that. And then there comes a moment where you go, all right, touch it. Let's just, let's just see how it goes. Hey, let's just see how it goes. I told you no 16 times. I should have spanked you already. I'm going to let that thing spank you. Touch it. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. The difference between like, my temporal consequence or our temporal consequences and God's is that God's consequences are eternal because he's an eternal God. Right? He's thought more deeply about this. He's thought longer about this, harder about this than we could ever imagine. And so in Judges, what he's saying is this. Go ahead and touch that thing then. Let's see how it goes. I'll let it discipline it right out of you. Commitment becomes complacency, which is driven then into compromise. This is the direction that unrepentance takes us. And there's a time, if we could get into Romans, we would. Romans chapter 1, if you know it, where it says God left them to their own demise just to show them how bad it would get. If you want to know how bad Judges is going to get without reading the whole book, just go read Romans 1. It'll introduce it to you. The root sin here that we see then in Judges is this. It is the sin of moral autonomy. Moral autonomy, if you're a note taker. The root sin we're going to see all throughout Judges is moral autonomy. What do I mean by that? What I mean is uh, moral autonomy is whenever I determine what is good and bad. Whenever I become my own God. Whenever I begin to make all my decisions for myself. This is all that Israel did is they looked at the ways of God and they said, I know a better way. It's no different than what Adam and Eve did whenever they had literally everything given to them in the garden. And they said, I want just a little bit more. I think it would be good and right for us to have just a little bit more. Then sin floods into the cosmos, cosmos, leads us into the book of Judges. And so the Israelites are saying, I just want what's good and right. I'll do what's right in my own eyes, even though it's evil in the sight of the Lord. Moral autonomy. Let's get into it. This is everything that American Western culture is. 
the idol of moral autonomy. I woke up at 3.45 this morning thinking about this. I haven't been asleep yet. That's what's wrong with them. Yeah, that's what's wrong with them. <laughs> Just couldn't stop thinking about it. I mean, you think about all the different idols. I got into it last week. I said, Western culture is a raging river. It's our responsibility to put a dam in that river, which is the gospel and God's word and are the people of God looping arm, like wrapping arms about one another and throwing our bodies into that river. Do you remember? Woke up this morning thinking about this raging. I can't stop thinking about it. And you think about moral autonomy and the way that it expresses itself through the idols of our culture. Think about cancel culture as an idol. What is, what is cancel culture? It's I'll be the judge. I don't need God to give me a judge. I'll be the judge. And whenever you disagree with me, then it's I determine what is morally right, what is morally sound, what is morally good. And if we can't jive and we don't get on the same page, you're canceled. What are they saying? I want justice for your disobedience to me. You see that? Cancel culture, listen, and the church is scared to death of it. We just talked about it in our confession, I believe. Mark and them just let us through it. The whole you do you slogan for moral autonomy. You do you until it affects me, then you're canceled. It's inconsistent. Do you see that? It's a raging, it's chaos. Hey, you just do you. Well, who determines what that is? Well, me when it affects me because I'm the judge. Moral Autonomy. Listen, if you get canceled from culture as a Christian, think about that. If you get canceled from culture as a Christian, you're probably doing the right thing. Praise the Lord. <laughs> right? Put that on Facebook. See if they censor this one. They didn't censor last week's. So, I mean, seriously. Right? Friend of the world, enemy to God. Pretty clear in the text. Think about the idol of equality in our culture. I love equality. Want people to want, totally believe in the Imago Dei and equality. Yes and amen. Think about the idol of equality. Who determines what's equal? Because what about whenever that equality now affects me negatively and I become the judge and I say that's no longer equal? For example, when they let little boys run on little girls' track teams and little boys win and then little boy gets kicked off the track team, was it really equal? Someone stepped in as the judge into the raging river and said in a chaotic way, that's not fair. How do you get to say what's fair? Who are you to say what's fair? Outside of God's word is what I'm saying. There's no consistency. It's just a raging river. It makes absolutely no sense. I got a little, I got an article. This, I get multiple articles sent to me. Um, sometimes, thank you for that. Other times, they just go in the trash. But <laughs> I got a good article sent to me this week about a Christian school in New York. Listen to me. Who's telling preschoolers? to stop calling their mommies and daddy, mommy and daddy. You tell my kid to stop calling me mommy and daddy, I'm going to lose my sanctification. <laughs> I'm coming for you. Like, no, it's a, and here's why I have a problem with it, because it's a Christian school. If it's just the world, hey, Paul is really clear. First Corinthians, we don't judge those outside of the church. We judge those inside of the church. Right? We judge those inside of it. We discern those inside of it. What the world does, let the world do, church. That's the world. They can be chaotic and crazy and all the things that they want to be and call it equality if they want to. But as Christians, we sit under the authority of God's word and we say, I'm Josiah and Emma and Casey's daddy. And they better call me that because we believe in the Imago Dei. They were created in the image of God. And so when Christian organizations do that, that's when we have problems. So they say this in this article. Don't call uh, mommy and daddies mommy and daddies. They also say you can no longer use the word friends. 
because not everyone has friends. So now you have to use the word folks. But what's interesting about that, and I'm not trying to be funny, I call my parents my folks. So how does that work? It's completely inconsistent. It doesn't make any sense. It's not inclusive at all. It's exclusive, especially for Christians to do. And so, and so I share this because I, I even had her, I, I put 1 Corinthians in here because I want us to just know, like for Paul, the Apostle Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And so the Apostle Paul said, here's what happens, and that's why I put this in the sermon. There is a tendency to get angry with culture. I have that tendency sometimes. There's a tendency to get angry with like the LGBTQ community and put all the blame on them. There's a tendency to get angry with all the social justice things that happen all across the board, whether you, no matter what flag you're flying, there's a tendency to get mad at Western culture. And and then in that madness, in that anger, in that judgment, we as Christians, professing Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians, professing Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians, will begin to look down our nose at the very ones God has called us to save. We are not called to judge those outside of the church, but discern and judge those inside of the church. Right? When Pastor David brings up an adoption agency that is Christian last week and someone leaves our church because of that, he's bringing it up because it's a Christian organization that we're talking about, not just any organization in the world. Christian organizations. We don't judge those outside of the church. Here's what we can do, though. We can lament. We can weep with those who weep. We can have hundreds of hours of conversations with people and we can be patient and mindful and thoughtful and missionally strategic and we can engage them and say, hey, I don't have all the answers. I don't, I don't even feel completely comfortable talking to you right now. This feels uncomfortable. But it's, at some point, the church has to stop remaining silent about things she's scared of and engage, right? And you step into the culture and you say, hey, we don't have all the answers. We know Jesus is good. I know you're not gonna fully submit to that right now, but I'm willing to work with you. Like, I just, you want to come over for dinner? Let me, let me watch your kids. You can go out. Let me hang out with you. Spend some time with you. Engage the culture instead of running from the culture. Because here's what's happened. When the church, the church has ran from the culture, much of the gospel, professing gospel-centered, Bible-believing church has ran from the culture. And other people who are professing to be the church, while people are running from the world to the church, what they've done is they stepped in as the church and they said, hey, I know you're running from the world. Let me go ahead and just give you more of the world and hope that that'll solve your problem. And now you have division, Presbyterian church divided, Methodist church divided, UCC church divided, Disciples of Christ church divided, all this division. Well, why isn't it working? Like, well, what is happening? Because you can't give the world the world and expect the world to redeem them. You give the world the gospel, you give them Jesus Christ resurrected, firstborn son of all cre- firstborn son of all creation, and he redeems them, right? It doesn't make any, if you go to David and say, David, I want to be trained, come train me. David, I need to be trained, I'm out of shape. And he says, just sit on the couch and pay me money. What would you say? You'd say, no, that's ignorant. And so when the world comes running to the professing church and they're giving more of the world, they're not getting any results, that's exactly what should happen. Because only the gospel is the power of salvation, nothing else. And so this moral autonomy has leaked into the church in so many ways. And we're going to see it all throughout the book of Judges. So what is God going to do? Last thought. I don't even know how long I've been up here. Last thought is this. What will God do? Verse 16 through 23. It's a big read. 
I'll read it to you, then I'll share the gospel with you. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the land of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. He's pretty clear on how he feels about that, yes? They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with that judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Really beautiful and gracious and merciful. For the Lord was moved by pity of, by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. He's still pursuing them. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, what happened? Israel turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods. They just get worse and worse and worse, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Who's at fault here? Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Josh, regardless of this habitual cycle of commitment and complacency and compromise, God raises up a judge and then another judge and then another judge. And the cycle just continues all throughout the book of Judges. The people, they repent, they come to, they profess faith, we'll say. God is with them. He's with them the whole time, but they're walking in his ways and then boom, complacency hits and they get worse and worse and worse and worse and then compromise hit. And it's just story after story after story in the book of Judges. It leads us to absolutely no hope outside of a resurrected savior. The book of Judges is the most sad and depressing book in the whole entire Bible outside of Jesus. It offers us no good news. All it does is offer us a, a picture, a reality of us needing not just one judge to step in and save us, but a judge who will step in and save us eternally. And so the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is just that. A non-Christian, the world has says, I'm going to be the judge of myself, and I'll take whatever consequences. If there are any consequences that come, I'll take those consequences. But a Christian has stepped in and said, I have the perfect judge who took my justice, who administered justice for me, took the judgment that I deserve. For us now, post-cross, we know most certainly that that is, in fact, Jesus. And Jesus speaks into every single aspect of culture that wants to drive fear in you. Jesus is canceled, so you don't ever have to be canceled. Jesus comes for the salvation of the world. That's, that's equality. For God so loved the what? World that he gave his only son. Tell me who in the world is going to do that for you. All right, so let's stand together as we enter into communion with one another as we get to celebrate this gospel, lest we turn and become complacent ourselves. We take communion every week as a reminder of the celebration as to who God is and what God has done. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians. Hopefully you were able to grab a communion cup on your way. And it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. Take this communion in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of us that are Christians, this is a meal that is for you. 
Uh, it's a meal that, that reminds you of God's grace now, his God, God's grace in the future, his grace from the past. It's most certainly a meal that reminds you of God being judged in your place as your substitute. So as you look at the, the wafer that represents God's body being broken for you, Jesus' body broken for you, as you see the cup representing Christ's blood spilt for you, right? It is a direct reminder that justice has been served, and it's the justice we deserve gets poured out on the cross of Jesus. And that would have been enough, church. But then he resurrects from the dead and he sends us his Holy Spirit. Listen, not so we can cower back from the things that fear us, bring fear to us, but rather so that we're being formed and reformed in here. We can actually enter into culture with the gospel, with God's word, bound together to sift through what is needing to be redeemed versus what is and what has already been redeemed in Christ. That's what we get to do. It's incredible. I'm excited to be in Judges with you. Take communion if you're not already the team. Send us out.